0: Again, my name is Alec Hale, and I have the great opportunity to talk a little bit about Colossians, about a tool I use to work with the Bible. How appreciative I am, I don't know, if Pastor R's been encouraging us to read through Colossians and to dig deeper maybe than we normally would, and so I'll encourage you to do the same. And it's been a real blessing to me. It was a blessing last week to hear Brenda Rhoda talk about inductive Bible study. It's just something I'd kind of gotten away from, and I'm trying to dig deeper and look. ...kind of objectively at it. I've read the Word and sometimes I read it rotely... ...just because I've read it before. I appreciate what she said last week about... Um, ...inductive reasoned looking at the Bible. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about a tool I use... ...to study the, the Bible. But first I want to tell you a story about my mom. Uh, my mom is a, was a teacher. She actually still is a teacher. I don't think teachers ever stop teaching. And uh, She taught for 30 years. She was an English and a French teacher at a high school, at the high school I went to, and she was one of those hard, good teachers. Um, Hard and good in that you didn't really appreciate her until you were a sophomore or a junior in college, and she gets lots of letters from sophomores and juniors that say, Mrs. Hale, thank you for pushing us beyond what we were used to. Uh, You begin to see that appreciation. Well, as most teachers, too, she didn't end or stop teaching at school. She carried it home to us as well, too. And when we would be reading, uh, we would read a book and come to a word that we might not know, and we'd yell out, Mom, what's the def- what does this word mean? Uh, and can you guess what her answer to us was? That's exactly what it was. Look it up in the dictionary. And so you've got to trudge down from wherever you are, and you've got to pull out the dictionary. And sadly, you look it up, and you realize you don't know how to spell it. And you go, Mom, how do you spell? And she'll give you, like, the first two letters. And then you go, well, what's the rest of it? And she goes... Spell it out, sound it out in your head. And so you, you get through and you, you read that thing, but the lesson she had for us in it and the treasure that was in looking those words up in the dictionary was that suddenly the, if I'm reading a textbook or if I'm reading a novel, suddenly the intent of the author became clearer to me or I understood this character more and then it helped me interpret the plot and it helped me see how that character dealt with things. It gave me a bigger view of what I was reading, gave me a grander and more understandable scale of it. And unbeknownst to me, I'm sure known to her, it also then aided me in communication because now I have another arrow in the quiver of my vocabulary. I got a word that when I talk, I can communicate better and I can communicate with more precision and more understanding. It was a great treasure to me, and where it used to be drudgery to me to come down and find it now, I love when I find uh, a word that I don't, it's less common that I find what I don't know, but more common that I find when I think, maybe I don't have the full grasp or the full measure of this word, and it was exactly the thing when I was reading Colossians 3 this last week. It lists a whole bunch of things, greed and lust, and frankly, I forget the others, but then I came to this word idolatry that I thought, I don't have the full grasp of what idol means or what idolatry means. I thought, what do I think? Really, the only use I use that in today is American Idol, and I like Survivor, and so there's this immunity idol, but I suspect those two things are not what they're talking about Colossians, and so I went to my favorite dictionary, and it's this one. It's, uh, this is actually Felicia's mom's dictionary that she took to college. It's the 1956 edition of Webster's, and let me read you what it says in here about idol. I'm going to cough. <coughs> Pardon me. It says this. idol, um, That which is seen, a form, a shape, akin to an image, an image or representation of a deity, made or used as an object of worship, uh, a false god, a heathen deity, any image or representation that's an imposter, a form or appearance, visible but without substance, an image in the mirror. And, and that got me That's got me started on it, but I still don't quite understand what it means. And so I actually have a different resource that I often go to as well, and it's this one. And this is a, a Bible dictionary, and maybe some of you are less familiar with. I actually picked this one up at Ollie's, and Ollie's is a great place to look for resources. I think this one cost me $8. But these are available online, too. So you just Google Bible dictionary, and it'll pop right up. But instead of just looking at the word... Um, the word's origins, this goes a little deeper, and I know you're not going to be able to see it well, but whereas that was just a few lines of definition, when you look up idol, you get it from way over here, and it talks about each instance in the Bible of where idol is mentioned, and it talks about what those people were. When Gideon had an idol, it was the Asherah pole, and then it tells you a little bit about the Asherah pole, and suddenly now I know something about Asherah poles and what the people thought of them and how they worship them and then it goes on to show me some other pictures and histories of what idols are and here's a little bit of what it says I'm not going to tell you that go through those whole two pages but listen to these things that popped out about idols in that book and it was this idolatry is sin of the mind against God sin of the mind against God whereas immorality are sins of the flesh against God it's traced back to the lack of acknowledgement of God in his proper place. It's a lack of gratitude towards God. An idolater is a slave to the depraved ideas that his idols represent. It says an idol is anything that leads to the dethronement of God from the heart, from his right place in the heart. And so when I took Webster's Dictionary's bit on idols, and I took this Bible dictionary and took this and then chewed on it, and I came up with my own definition based on those things. And here's what I... I came up, kind of a thing that I resolved that when I see idols, again in the Bible, I'm going to think about this. It says, "I've, I've made an idol of something whenever I believe any object or action can provide for me what only God can truly provide. And so if I, if I think money is where my security lies, or my, my nice home is where comfort lies, I've made those things an idol because my security can only come from God and I've taken him off of his right place in my heart and i put this other thing like money or idol. Or if I'm up late at night and I want comfort and I look to anything other than God, food or pornography or frankly anything other than God, I've missed it and I've made those things an idol because only God can provide true comfort. And what these tools have done for me are exactly what my mother did for me, is that when I when I chew into these words, these things I don't know or don't quite get, there's a hidden treasure there, and these dictionaries allow me to pull it up, and then I have a better understanding of the intent of the heart of God, I have a better picture of what he's talking about. I have a better grasp of the big picture, and it helps me to know God better, and I encourage you uh, to pick it up. They're online, so they're free right now, but particularly, it's not that when I don't know a word. It's that idea of if you get along and you get an inkling from the Holy Spirit that says, hey, look a little deeper in this word. Pull out your dictionary and take a look at it. I'd encourage you to do it. I know is going to encourage us as well to continue reading this and particularly look through Colossians and see what the Holy Spirit has drawn up for you there. Offering time. Let's pray for the offering that's going to come right now. Father, what what a blessing it is to come before you, thinking that your Holy Spirit is here with us today as we give our offering, help us to have hearts that give to you. Help us, if we've got... One of the things I think you want us to do this for routinely is because money's so easy for it to be an idol, and we think our strength and our security comes from it, and it's false, it's smoke and mirrors. Help us to practice giving to you freely, Father God. And just like there's hidden treasures in your truth, there's hidden treasures in giving away, and we see that the heart of love is giving. And we go from being captive... To, uh, to an idol, being a slave to an idol, to being free in you. Help us to do that as we give our offerings. Help us to give it with joyous and wondrous hearts, your mighty, awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: That was beautiful. Thank you, Daniel, for being honest. And Youth Praise Team, are they awesome? Did you love these guys? Thank you. I believe that God has some good things in store for you this morning. We're in a new series entitled Living the Christian Life, focused primarily on the third chapter of the book of Colossians. So you have a Bible, it'll help you with this sermon. I believe that um, Christian living is always preceded by Christian learning. And the greatest thing you can learn as a Christian is the nature and identity of God. That is who God is. And then in coming to understand who God is, his identity, He will make it clear to you who you are, your identity. To become a Christian, then, is to have a profound change in one's identity. You aren't now who you used to be. For if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Augustine was a man who had lived a profligate and profane life. He was known for his sexual immorality in his city. But he had been converted to Christ, and he saw one of his old girlfriends on the street, and she said to him, Augustine, it is I. And he ignored her. And so she said again sweetly, Augustine, it is I. And again, he paid no attention to her. And finally, she said, Augustine, it is I. And he paused for a long time, and he said, Yes, I see it is you, but it is not I. You see, he had changed. By the work of God's Spirit and God's Word, Christians become somebody who never existed before. See, contrary to what some believe, it is not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are. It is rather who you are that determines what you do. For instance, an accountant this time of year is working on taxes, right? And a teacher is preparing lessons, and a police officer is doing what police officers do. You see, who you are determines what you do. Once you step into your new identity as a Christian, God will show you the steps of obedience you are to take. And this morning, I'm going to be asking you to take a pretty huge step of obedience and let some things go. You know, this uh, last Friday, the mops had a yard sale, and much was let go of. You're uh, garages and basements are emptier now because you let go of some things. Some things are good to let go of. What we talked about this morning is something that's necessary to let go of. Last week, I spoke to you about identity and who we are in Christ. And I said then that Christ died for your sins, that you might die to your sin. Paul said, don't you know that you have died to sin? How can you live in sin any longer? You see, since your identity has changed, When sin comes knocking at your door, you don't have to open the door, and you certainly don't have to let sin through the front door and stay with you. So why should we say no to sin? Because we have died to sin. To become dead to sin is to become unresponsive to sin's overtures. And the specific sin I want to address this morning is the sin of sexual immorality, The notion that sex is benign or harmless, interaction between two consenting adults has seeped into the pores of every aspect of our culture. You and I have seen the consequences of sin outside of marriage. Someone has said, because we don't know the verses of Scripture, we have become perverse. In other words, either we will know the verses of Scripture, or we will become perverse. Either sin, either the book will keep us from sin, or sin will keep us from the book. So we're going to work our way through Colossians, beginning this morning in Colossians chapter 1. If you can turn there, Colossians 1, as we try to get a handle on the very nature of our God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says, He, speaking of Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I love that. That Jesus makes God visible to us. John, beginning the first chapter, says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He was with God in the very beginning, and the Word became flesh, became incarnate, and made His dwelling among us. That is, that God pitched His tent in our neighborhood that all they had known was the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the glory of God resting in that tabernacle or the temple. But now God had tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory from his life, the glory of the one and only God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And no one has seen God at any time, but the one and only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus became visible that we might know the invisible God. God. He became seen that we might know the unseen God. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn is not referring here to being entering into existence through birth. It's referring rather to the highest in rank, to the highest in title, You see, Jesus, because he was obedient unto death, he's been given a name that's above every other name, a title. The title is Lord. He is firstborn over all creation. If your Bible's still open, turn with me back to John, the fifth chapter, as we understand something about Jesus who made God visible to us. In John, the fifth chapter, we read sometime later that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, Now, in Jerusalem, there was a sheep gate. The sheep gate was the gate through which they brought their sheep to offer them to God. And now the Lamb of God has come to Jerusalem. And there was in Jerusalem, beside the sheep gate, a pool, a reservoir of water. And the belief was, at this pool, people were made well. Just like there are traditions about the lords in France, southern France, where there's a medicinal spa, that if people come, they'll be made well. Or like the Shrine of Guadalupe down in Mexico, the belief is that come to this place and you'll be made well. Well, the belief there was that once in a while, there would become an angel from God who would stir these waters up. And when the waters were stirred, the first one into the pool was made well. The truth of the matter was This pool was fed by an underground reservoir, like a spring, that came intermittently. And the spring would sort of make the waters rise and make the waters fall. And the legend became that the first one into these waters, when the spring fed them, would be made well. It was called Bethesda. Now, Bethesda, there's a Bethesda, Maryland, not far from here. And Bethesda means House of Mercy. Them who came to this pool were looking for God's mercy. And there were five porches there. And there was a great number of disabled people who used to lie there. Disabled people. It reminds me of a VA hospital where the disabled lie looking for help. You see, there were no doctors to take care of them beside the pool. There were no breakthroughs in medicine to look forward to. There were no Medicines to take, it was a pretty helpless and hopeless condition. And there were a number of great disabled people who used to lie there. There was the blind, and the blind couldn't see. And there was the lame, and the lame couldn't walk. And there was the paralyzed, and the paralyzed couldn't move. And perhaps this is a picture of all humanity that has become blinded by our own sin or become lame and unable to walk in the ways of God, or paralyzed, stuck in our condition. There, as it were, was a mass of humanity at the pool. And there was one who had been there for 38 years, an invalid. 38 years is a long time to be an invalid, to be in a helpless and hopeless condition. Someone had to carry him to this place. And his hope was that someday the waters would be stirred and he could be the first in the pool and be made well. You see, his hope rested in himself or in somebody else to help him. And Jesus learned that this man had been in this condition for a long time. Now, we don't know if this man was dealing with cerebral palsy or tuberculosis or cancer or some other disorder. But he had been in this way for a long time. And Jesus asked him a very profound question. This is the image of the invisible God. This is what God is like when he comes down to earth. He said to the man who was an invalid, Do you want to get well? There's two possible answers to the question. The first is, no, I'm good. (laughs) You can leave me alone. And the second is, yes, I want to get well. So let me ask you this question. Do you really want to get well? Do you really want your soul to heal? Because Jesus Christ has the power to heal a soul. He said, sir, I have no one to help me into this pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, what would Jesus say to the man who's beside the pool? Just wait a little longer until the waters are stirred, and I'll help push you in. Would Jesus say then, wait until an angel comes down and stirs the water, and then you'll be made well? You see, the man had to abandon all ideas that he could fix himself or somebody could fix him. You see, as long as he was relying upon somebody else to fix his situation or himself to fix his own situation, he would never be made well. And what Jesus Christ said to him was, get up and pick up your mat and walk. Jesus asked this man to do something that seemed humanly impossible. For 38 years, this man has been an invalid lying beside the pool. But he stands in the presence of the image of the invisible God. And Jesus says to him, get up. Stand up. It is as it, is as it were, this man comes with a wheelchair to this, beside the pool. And Jesus says to him, get up. What the man had to do was abandon all idea that he could fix himself or save himself or heal himself. He had to believe the very word of God. He had to believe the word of Jesus to get up. (laughs) And for the first time in 38 years, his feet, his ankles, his legs were strengthened, and the man began to stand. And so many people come into church, as it were, in a wheelchair, feeling like an invalid, as if somebody has to push you for a little while. And the word of Jesus Christ is, get up, stand up, and take up your mat, And begin to walk, (laughs) and at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. That tells me the identity of our God is He is a great healer. Our God is able to heal our afflictions. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and for by Him all things were created. Back to Colossians verse sixteen, all things were created. God created the things of heaven and the things of earth. God created the celestial and the terrestrial. God created the visible and the invisible. God created the things we see with a microscope as well as we have to see with a Hubble telescope. God painted the stripes on the zebra. And God stretched out the neck of the giraffe. And God gave wings to the eagle to soar. But God's crowning achievement was he created you in his very image. For all things were created by God. That means that God made you. That God made you in His very image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and God becomes visible through the image He cast upon you. You have been crowned with God's glory and God's honor. And you have been made in His image to reflect God's glory, to give God pleasure, to give God joy. <laughs> he made you. God is a healer, and God is a creator, and God is also a sustainer, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, scientists don't exactly know how atoms' molecules stay together. We know something about the protons and neutrons and the electrons swirling about, but we don't know how they hold together. But the scriptures declare that in him, in Jesus, he holds all things together. You may find your life is being pulled apart in many different directions, but it is he who is able to hold your life together. He is creator. He is healer. He is sustainer. And he is the head of the church, verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. When you were believed in Jesus, you were baptized by one spirit into the body. You are the body of Jesus Christ. Say with me, I am the body. You are the body of Jesus Christ. You are his hands and his feet. And those feet that used to take you in wrongful directions now walk in the path of peace. And those hands that used to sin now have been set apart for God, a vessel reserved for him. He is the head of the body, the church, and we are his church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, he's not the first one to rise from the dead. Jesus, while he was here, would raise three back from the dead, including Lazarus. But he is the most important one to be raised from the dead. You see, if Christ is not raised from the dead, Corinthians tells us, then our faith is futile. Our preaching is pretty useless. But then it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who fall asleep in him. For since death came through a man, the resurrection also comes through a man. For as in Adam, all will die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. You see, he's the firstborn from the dead to breathe life into our dead souls. And he, it says, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, that he might have the supremacy, that Jesus Christ might be preeminent in our lives. He might be first in our lives, first in our careers, first in our professions, first in our marriages, first in our families, first in our hobbies, first in our pleasures, first in our school, that it might be evident that Christ is preeminent in our life that he is ruling in our lives. You see, God did all of these things to show forth the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is above all else. He's above all other names. (laughs) And through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth in a reconciliation purpose. He knew that we were separated, alienated from God. So he sent forth his son who shed his blood upon a cross to make peace with God. We never hear of a man making his peace with God, but we hear of God making peace with man. He made peace with us through his blood shed on a cross. God has reconciled us to himself and given to us a ministry of reconciliation. To be reconciled means to be on good terms with God. That there is nothing between us. He was removing our sin, not counting our sins against us. At the cross, He was forgiving us. He has reconciled us to Himself. We need to get to know the identity of our God, the nature of our God. Then, as we look forward a little bit in Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 8, it says this See to it that nobody makes you, takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. In this world, there are all kinds of hollow, deceptive philosophies. Philosophies are how you live, the ways in which you live, which depend upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, in your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the 12th verse as we begin to unpack a philosophy that runs through our world. Paul now, in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, begins to talk about philosophy. And he begins to quote philosophers. There were philosophers living in Corinth who had a philosophy. And so these philosophers said these words, everything is permissible for me. That's what they were saying in Corinth that everything is permissible for me. In the town of Corinth, it was known to Corinthianize, to live sexually and morally. There were prostitutes living in Corinth, and the men would carouse by night to hook up with the prostitutes. They were saying it's permissible to be a prostitute, to prostitute yourself. It's permissible to carouse at night and hook up with a prostitute. It's permissible, according to the philosophers, to live sexually and morally. Our society, it seems that everything is permissible. It's permissible for a man to live with a man and be joined together in a union. It seems permissible that a man would live with a woman before they are married. It seems permissible to do whatever you want to do because there seems to be a philosophy in our world that everything is permissible. You see, God has given you a freedom. And with the freedom, you can choose to follow him or to step into sin. And God has not given us the freedom to use to step into sin. But yet, there's this philosophy in our world that before you get married, if you were trying out a car, you better give it a test drive. And a young man better sow his wild oats And you can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, without facing any consequences. And our enemy has been lying to us that everything is permissible. Because while there may be a freedom to choose, there always will be consequences associated with your choices. And the argument they were making then was, everything is permissible. But Paul said, not everything is beneficial. (laughs) Not everything is useful. There are gains from it but I will not be mastered by anything. There are things we can step into with our freedom that become for us an addiction. We are free to sit at our computer and click away and go on to pornographic sites, but the price of that freedom may be an addiction to pornography. And the argument ran food for the stomach and stomach for food. He was saying that just as there's a relationship between your stomach growling and filling your stomach with food, so there's a relationship between being lonely and entering into a relationship and satisfying your sexual appetites outside of the will of God. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You see it there in verse 13 God declares his word that the body that God has given to you was not meant for sexual immorality. You were made by God and for God to give God pleasure. Then it says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Do not be held captive by the philosophy of your time. Flee away from sexual immorality. Set some boundaries in your life. My hero, one of my heroes in the Old Testament is Joseph. And you know, Joseph was a man who was sold into slavery. And he went to live in Potiphar's house. And he found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. And Potiphar gave him an assignment to watch over his entire household. And God blessed Joseph, and God blessed Potiphar's house. And Joseph was well-built, and Joseph was handsome. And there came a time when Potiphar's wife saw Joseph, paid attention to him, began to fantasize about him. And she said, come to bed with me. Now at that very moment, Joseph had a choice to make, whether he would step into immorality or flee immorality. And he asked the question, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against my God? And what Joseph did in that very hour was he ran away From immorality. You have to say no and go. Our culture will teach you everything is permissible, but God wants to say to you, flee from sexual immorality. If you are married, guard your heart against emotional attachments to the other sex. Be very careful what you share with somebody else. Be very careful about becoming. Emotionally bound to somebody else. Be very careful about what you do late at night on the internet, the things you disclose to somebody else. Be very careful about carrying a grudge against your partner and then trying to retaliate against them through a relationship with somebody else. The Bible says to flee from sexual immorality. For all the other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, here's the bottom line, honor God with your body. God wants you to use the body he's given you to give him honor. Don't be taken captive by this philosophy of the world that everything is permissible. If you give your heart to somebody, you become entwined with that person's soul. And It'll be very hard to sever that relationship. Now, is it any surprise when we come to Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 5 that Paul says these words to us? What he says is, put to death something. Then, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things above where Christ is. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And put to death whatever remains of your earthly nature. And he lists a number of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. The first thing he asks us to get rid of, which is so very common in our culture, is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality then refers to sex outside of marriage. This is the word from which we get pornographic. The word is pornea. To get rid then of the pornea in your life. For many men, pornography has become that place to which they go. When there are frustrations in their life and loneliness and exhaustion in their life, they run to pornography. It is like as a little boy we had a fort into which we went, where no girls were allowed. And um, the place we went when we were frustrated about life, when we were exhausted, we could finally find a refuge. For some pornography has become that refuge into which they have gone to try to find that freedom, but only to step themselves into some form of slavery. What God says to us is, I want you to get rid of the sexual immorality in your life. When Jesus was talking about this subject, he said, If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's a pretty radical treatment there concerning sin. Sin is such a serious thing that Jesus would say concerning your eye to gouge it out and your hand to cut it off. Now, Jesus is not talking there about literal surgery. There was a pickpocket who was caught back in England, several centuries ago, and when he was caught, he had his hand cut off. (laughs) And he was caught pickpocketing again, and they cut his other hand off. But it didn't stop him from pickpocketing because he began to steal with his teeth. You see, what Jesus is talking about there is the matter of the heart. That's why he said, you've heard it said many times, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, when you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus is talking about the desires of one's heart. You see, what happens when you become a Christian is the deeper desire of your heart is to be pleasing to God, not to find pleasure within yourself. A man says, I can do anything I want. That's what Magic Johnson said before he got HIV-AIDS. That's what Tiger Woods said before he got caught. You see, a person says... I can do anything I want, will ultimately face the consequences for that action. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, When I use the term put to death, put to death is a very violent, bloody metaphor. Uh, some guys in the church have a cow now. They've partnered together to have a cow. And they're talking about the two measures of death for this cow, <laughs> There's one of two ways that this cow can be put to death. One is a bullet and the other is a knife. But you see, when you get radical about your sin, you realize there's something that needs to be put to death. And what needs to be put to death is your sexual immorality. And impurity. You see, impurity refers to more than just sexual immorality. It refers to moral uncleanness lurid imagination, speech, a filthy mind. One of the aspects of sanctification then is that progressively we're becoming more and more pure. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain yourself from sexual immorality. You learn to possess your vessel with honor and dignity. And the third thing he asks us to put away is that of lust and evil desires. You see, a person can aspire toward the lower desires, or a person can aspire toward the higher desires. And this is going to require for you some radical change in your life. There will be books that you will no longer read. There will be movies that you won't want to see. There will be websites that you won't want to go to. There will be magazines that you'll leave on the shelf. You see, what it implies is that there's a radical change to your lifestyle as you learn more and more about the nature of God and your nature as a child of God. And he wraps it all up by saying, which is idolatry? What Alec was saying earlier was that sexual immorality is a sin of the flesh against God. And idolatry is a sin of the mind against God. Idolatry is anything that substitutes the very place of God. Isn't it interesting to me, it's interesting to me, that many men who were sensual in their early part of their life have become materialistic in the latter part of their life because both of them are desires to have something that's not theirs. This is what he says. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. We understand that the wrath of God fell upon our Savior at the cross. It was there that he bore the full punishment for our sins. But those who do not repent of these ways, who are known in their identity for following after these things, the Scripture says the wrath of God is indeed coming, in which you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. So let's return to our verse in chapter 1 and verse 20, which talks about the reconciliation. Christ came into this world to reconcile you back to God. To those who were far from God, to bring them near to God. To those whose lifestyles were far from pleasing God, to bring them into a lifestyle that's pleasing to God. And as we celebrate the bread and cup, it provides an opportunity for us just to be honest with God and to ask Him to deliver us from sin and sin's power in our life. And to cleanse us from all the impurity, and forgive us for all the things we stepped into. For all of us have a history. And for many of us, the history is not very pretty. It's pretty ugly. But What Jesus is able to do is he's able to cleanse us and purify us and forgive us. Come, let us reason together that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white like snow. They shall be white like the wool of a lamb. That God is able to take all that sin of our past and our present and to cleanse it and forgive it because he came to reconcile us. He came to show us his identity and have us step into our new identity as the children of the living God, forgiven fully of our sins, reconciled back to him. We're In a moment, we're going to invite our team, they can come on up, to uh, position themselves. There will be stations with uh, bread and cup all around. We always invite believers to come and celebrate this moment with us. It's a celebration of Christ's victory over sin and over the grave. We invite you to come and receive the element, and we're going to have a song that's going to be sung. And you're free to receive, and you're free to gather as a family or as a small group, or just be by yourself and have some quiet moments alone with God. And just have some communion with Him. And then when you're ready, you can partake of the elements and be thankful to God for the sacrifice borne by the Son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son the visible image of the invisible God to be the firstborn over all creation, to have the highest rank, to have the highest title, that he might be preeminent in our lives. For we realize that we were created by you and for you. And in God, you hold our lives together and you, Jesus, are the head of the church, and we are your hands, and we are your feet. We're thankful that you've reconciled us back to yourself. And as we commune with you, risen Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for the work of your Spirit delivering us and freeing us from the things that have held us fast, from the chains that have bound us from our past. We pray for your cleansing work, and your healing work in our lives. God, we really do want to become well. So heal us, Lord, and deliver us. And help us be thankful for the delivering power of the Holy Spirit. Meet with us, Lord, as we partake of these precious elements. For We pray together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you as you partake. Thank you.